0: The
1: Nation
2: station, Manx Radio. Fastamai, good afternoon and welcome to Perspective on Manx Radio. I'm Dolan Mercer, here with you until two o'clock. And fresh from a a fruitful trip to the Young Arias Awards in London, William King joins me to keep us all in line. Um, Will is also on hand to voice your comments and we'd love you to get involved this afternoon. Um, You can give us your thoughts on anything you hear posing questions perhaps for our panel um, or with any other contributions that spring to mind you can text us on one double seven. you can email studio at manxradio.com you can use the hashtag mr perspective on social media Um, I say we'll be here until two. That's true for Manx Radio's FM frequency. However, at around one o'clock, you will be given a choice of listening. If you want to hear coverage of this afternoon's practice session from around the TT course, you can do so on AM frequencies, online and via the usual smartphone apps. This week on perspective, something of a, a change of tone and pace we're going to discuss what's largely still a, a taboo topic, really, or perhaps it is certainly, to my knowledge, that the final chapters of life on Earth. And we're joined by people who specialize, really, in, in in just that. Appearing in Studio One on Douglas Head, I have before me a panel of uh, of, of experts, guests to join uh, to talk about dying matters, death, grief, and the importance of end of life care. Uh, first of all, I'd like to introduce a voice probably quite well known to some Manx Radio listeners, um, accomplished broadcaster and esteemed colleague Judith Lay. Good afternoon, Judith. How are you? Good afternoon, darling. It's very good to
0: be here. I was I was quite taken aback by that introduction. That's very <laughs> lovely. Thank you. I, I shall take an, an audio clip of that and treasure it. Um, but you, you said in introducing this that, that we're going to talk about a sensitive matter today. And and it is, I think it's true to say, I don't know why it is, but, you know, if, if you come across a beautiful poem or a lovely piece of music and say, someone will say oh i'm going to have that at my funeral and somebody will say oh, oh don't talk like that as though talking about it make, makes will make it happen and of course it's an inevitable part going to happen to all of us but how we handle it is is very much something that we we do have control over and what we've got this afternoon to take part in this program are people who've got very particular experience and in in all cases very great breadth of experience so i think what we'll be able to do in talking amongst ourselves is is to cover every aspect especially the things that people don't talk about and i think if we could just ask our guests to introduce themselves sitting next to me i've got sue wilson sue tell us what your role is
3: hello um I'm Sue Wilson. Um, my job at the moment is a long-term conditions coordinator, which is rather a mouthful. Um, by background, I'm a district nurse of many years. Before that, I worked in hospice and the accident and emergency department, and it is my privilege to look after people who are toward the end of their life, but also people who are going to recover and go on and do more things. But everybody needs to have that conversation, I feel.
0: And a handsome gentleman <laughs> sitting next to you. Uh, I'm Arthur Taggart.
4: I am, or was a carer for my wife who had PSP, that is Progressive Supranuclear Palsy, which is a very degenerative disease and non-treatable and not curable. So I spent quite a few years as a carer.
5: And Rosie. Hello, good afternoon. My role at the moment is working with colleagues from across the Department of Health and Social Care and third sector agencies to develop a model of integrated care. My background is I'm a mental health nurse. Predominantly, my career has been spent supporting people living with dementia. So uh, unfortunately, when the people we looked at were coming toward the end of their life, death is not a stranger to me at all.
1: And last but by no means least, Hi I'm Stephen Heron, a paramedic with the Isle of Man Ambulance Service and uh, my specialty if you will, my role is uh, to look after the end-of-life care, education and uh, training for my colleagues and also offer support uh, throughout the Department of Health um, from what uh, what the Ambulance Service can offer to patients again and to colleagues um, throughout the Department of Health and Social Care.
2: Thank you very much indeed everybody, thank you for, for joining us. Um, to begin with then I um, If we could, could we give a bit of an outline as to what organisations, services and support networks are in place on the island to help those who are, whether it be directly or or indirectly, of course, involved with with end of life care? Maybe maybe that's a a question. Judith.
0: Well, what I was thinking, uh, actually, um, darling, is that that, um, I've got a particular story that I can share a first-hand experience. And if we perhaps kicked off with that, because what you'll discover in conversation with all our guests, they've all got all the, the information that you need, but it, it's best if it comes out in a conversation and, and then the whole thing, rather than list this organization, that organization, what we bring is a range of experiences of using those agencies and the support that is there and how to, to use them positively. And in my case, what went wrong and this story that I'm going to tell you is a story against myself. There's nobody to blame in this story except me. But I think it's a story that shows how you, how we have to have these conversations. We have to understand what's at stake. Because this that happened to me is what happens if you don't have the conversation. And what I stupidly thought was that there were questions I didn't have answers to. So I made up the answers in my head because I didn't want to have the conversation. And this was when I was caring for my father. And my father was in great health until he turned about 90, till he got to about 91. And then his health started to deteriorate seriously. Nothing particular. He was just getting old. He was just wearing out. He was tired of living He didn't want to struggle any further and he had lots of tests and various conditions were identified. He was in heart failure. He had a blocked carotid artery. Some of his vertebrae were collapsing. He was in a lot of pain. He became bedridden, but I had the whole thing worked out in my head. He was living with me and and I thought, well, he's living with me. I'm taking care of him. And the only reason that I could keep him at home and look after him and keep him as comfortable as was reasonably possible was that I had wonderful support from our district nurse team. And this was how I first met Sue Wilson, who at that time was looking after our district nurses in the north of the island. And they were coming regularly. They were always on hand if I wanted to ring up. I could always speak to somebody if I had any query. And the first thing I told myself was that... Talking to the district nurse is the same as talking to a doctor. So I kind of parceled that one away. Now, bear in mind, I'm telling this story against myself, not, not blaming anybody else. So my father's condition continued to deteriorate as, you, you, as just because of the passage of time a few years go by. He hated his state of health. He wanted to just slip away. He'd had enough. He was tired. He'd had a great life. He was the first to say that that he had a great life and he just wanted to to slip away. When he did actually die one morning uh, and I was told that because of his condition, it would be sudden. And it was. When he died, I rang up the medical medical centre. There were no doctors available because they'd all gone to a colleague's funeral. And so I was advised by the person on duty to ring for an ambulance. Now, the reason I didn't ring for an ambulance was because I knew that my father had died. This was exactly what I'd been prepared for. And so there wasn't an urgency. It was, I was just told that this was how it would be. So as advised by the medical practice, I rang for an ambulance. And that was when the whole thing came unraveled. And I realized how foolish I had been because the paramedics arrived they didn't know how long my father had i could roughly tell them how long it, it was since since he had collapsed but because they'd been the, the, he did, they didn't have any details they had to spend the next 20 minutes trying to revive him although both i and they knew that he was dead which was incredibly distressing because if by some minor miracle they had revived him it wasn't what he wanted he would have been Utterly distraught because his health would just have been further compromised, but because, in the legal terms, it was an unexplained death, the police had to come. The police had to stay in the house until my father's body was taken away, and it was taken away not by an undertaker. It was taken away by a coroner's uh, team of people in very very um, distressing and undignified circumstances but it was nobody nobody everybody was doing what was right but it could all have been avoided if I had not been foolish enough to not have the conversations but to think I knew all the answers and that's why I think this is a good point to start off this program to say do not be like me it doesn't need to be like this because three years later after I'd been caring for my mother who was alive at uh, all of this time the the experience that I had with the knowledge that I'd gained the experience of my mother's death was the polar opposite and it was the best experience that it could be the most dignified the most peaceful the most controlled that it could be and that was why I, I thought this was a good point to start Rosie would you like so, to pick yeah, up on that? Yeah
5: I had a similar conversation when my own father died he died over 23 years ago before long, before he got sick and dying, but not like so far away, he came into the living room. I was at home in Ireland. And he came in, and he asked me he wanted to talk to me about his will, about after his death. And I did not want at that time to talk about his will or after his death because I couldn't bear the thought of him being dead at all. So we didn't have the conversation. I was like, uh, uh-uh, not having the conversation. Anyway, time passed. We did have some conversations in writing, but they're never the same because a lot gets lost in translation. So he died. Daddy died. And then it was after his death, I did a piece of reflection for my work. I was doing some training at work for my job as a nurse. And I did some reflection on the differences, the things I would have done so differently had, had I had the opportunity again. It was because, actually, of my own father's death that I now advocate that everyone should have the conversations. They are very difficult. People don't like to have them because they don't they can't bear the thought of losing a loved one at all. But the, the opposite side of that coin is when they die. Like Judith just said, she feels guilt after all this time because... She didn't know what to do. Lots of people feel guilt because they don't know what to do and because we don't have those conversations.
2: So how how is that a topic that can be broached?
4: Can I just come in a minute? <clears throat> I was perhaps lucky, my experience, uh, with and my wife, because we sat down with Sue and we planned her final days. We planned what her choice would be, how she would like to die. She knew it was inevitable. And there is a, uh, there is a little form, isn't there, that you can, u- that you can use and uh, that helps you to plan the end of life. And I think that is very important. I know we don't like to talk about it, but my wife insisted, and she was the one. She even planned which hymns she would have at her funeral. So it's, it is important. The person who's left behind has the problems, but it's not for us. It's for the person who is passing that we've got to help.
3: I think the booklet Arthur's referring to is Advanced Care Planning Booklet. um, And these are available from the hospice, also from Cruz. Cruz put together a really, really good um, folder, really, which has got things about planning for dying, things that you need to do for your finances but also things you might want to do for yourself and we can then follow that up what we have since since judith's father died um rosie and i were both working separately at the same time and found out about each other to try and produce a policy for community for do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation there was already a hospital policy but it didn't transfer to community so we then got together and with Steve Crow who's a paramedic um, and the resuscitation officer um, and our governance lady Jenny Brown and we began to form this policy later on we then invited Judith to join us because she'd been through the experience so we thought it'd be really really good to have her thoughts on it and then Steve Stephen Heron joined us latterly as well so this um, do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation has been around now since July 2016 and we updated it last June and we're hoping before the next update in 2020 to make it a unified policy so it will go across the hospitals, the hospice and us in community and that means the patient will then have the same form wherever they are and will not have to be asked that question over and over again because it's good to have the conversation but we don't need to keep repeating the conversation which we do have to do still at the
2: moment. So to put that in sort of um layman's, layman's terms, terms <laughs> if you like, um you are you are effectively opting not to be resuscitated if if that's a, a situation had, that arises. Is that, is that is that a correct understanding?
3: Yes, that that's you can make that decision yourself, but overall it's actually a medical decision. We look at cardiopulmonary resuscitation as a treatment the same as any other treatment and actually if you're very frail if the if you're not going to recover from resuscitation because unfortunately we all watch the dramas on the television and in Holby City and Casualty to name but two everyone has one shock and they sit up again and it's marvellous they're back to taxpaying status which rarely happens if someone is already debilitated and a Resuscitation is attempted. The chances are they're not going to recover, or they may recover for a couple of days. End up spending the last few hours in a coronary care or intensive care unit, which perhaps was not their wishes. So we we now do have this form. We've produced a leaflet called Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation, which explains what happens when you're resuscitated and why it's good to make that decision not to be resuscitated. What we do in community, um, because it was difficult to, where do we record this? Where do we keep this form? Um, We had all sorts of ideas about pinning it above the headboard of the bed, but what happens if you're sleeping in a different room and there's a stranger in your bed? Um, So we came up with using the Lions Club bottles, which have been around for some years, the message (coughs) in a bottle, and in there's a couple of green crosses that um, you stick on your fridge. You put this in the fridge with your do not resuscitate form inside it, and you stick a cross on the inside of the door that you use all the time. So if the paramedics come to your house and they see that green cross, it will alert them. There's something here we need to investigate. Is it a do not resuscitate form, or is there some other important message in the fridge? Is that right, Stephen? Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was going to uh, touch on a couple of things just to bring back a little bit. When we um, when we talk about dying, it's one of those things that we have to unfortunately just face up to the fact that dying is a part of life. Really, um, we I think most of us are very very good at doing uh, putting plans for life in place. You know, we all plan to get a mortgage, we plan to have a family, we plan to get married, but we very rarely plan what happens at the point of dying. And it's really really important that we consider that death is a part of life. So it's important to plan for that. Um, The idea of the, the DNA CPR form is it's very, very specific to CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, which is the act that, it's the treatment that we provide when someone goes into cardiac arrest. And as Sue said, there's certain conditions, certain illnesses that people can suffer from, which people can't recover from. They won't return from if we try and do CPR for someone. CPR is is extremely effective as a treatment for people who are um generally fit and healthy if they have a sudden cardiac arrest um it can be extremely um successful in many cases however for um for debilitating ongoing illnesses sometimes it isn't beneficial and CPR itself can be quite brutal can be quite uh, um, damaging to the body really and uh, for that to be a lasting memory for a, for a family um to see their loved one go through that it's it's quite traumatic sometimes um, so the DNA CPR, the, the whole policy, the idea of that is to, to try and ease that pressure um, and to open up the idea of having discussion with the family, with the patient, um, and for this decision to be put in place. And it helps us from a paramedic point of view to be able to arrive on scene at uh, at, at a cardiac arrest and very quickly be able to make a decision that would be beneficial to the patient and their family. Um, I hope that sort of explains that well enough from from our side.
3: Yeah, I think that explained it a bit better. Thank you, Stephen. (laughs) And I think, too, it's about... Lately we're talking about personalised care. I was recently at a workshop in Leeds by the Queen's Nurse Institute and this is what we concentrated on, was putting the person in the centre of everything. So having that conversation about how do you want it to be toward the end, it's not just about the cardiopulmonary resuscitation, Mm. it's about other things that we might do to people, like various tubes (coughs) in, feeding tubes, catheters... All of that kind of thing, and and also what what you want to happen to your body afterwards. Mm. So it's it's a lot more than just the do not resuscitate. But we felt that not enough people know about that really, that that is out there, and to have that conversation.
5: I think I think also for me, uh, Steve just had on it before, and Sue's talk. It's a planning the end of your life. Yeah. You plan to go on holiday, for example. You do, you know, you check your passports, your tickets, etc., etc. For me, dying is really just as important as living. So it's a mm. planning, like. If people have a choice, if they have a choice, would they want to die in a specific place? Die at home, die in a hospice, in a hospital? A bit like Judith, my mum, also her death was different than my dad's, but she didn't have a choice, she died very suddenly. But she, before that, after my dad's death, had obviously earned from his death. She chose her own funeral song, she chose her own coffin. She spoke to my sister in depth about what it is that she wanted, which was so much better than my dad's. But for me, it's about, you know, would you like music at the end of your life? Do you want some... um, People in your uh, at your life, my, a, f- a very good friend of mine collapsed a few years ago on his way to work, actually he's a nurse also, and he collapsed and I thought he's actually the father of my son and he he collapsed and I thought if he died I have no idea what he wants. Not only that I would have to support my son and I have no idea what his dad wanted so as soon as he was well enough and he got out of hospital we went up myself and two other friends, four of us in total, went up to the cat with no tail with my laptop And we sat and we actually did our end of life plans in the Catnum Hotel drinking alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) Drinking alcohol. But we planned them and each of those end of life plans, which actually need to be updated because there's quite a lot of changes in their lives since. But they were all put into a white envelope, given to them back and they put them in the drawer so that their families would know whenever they got to the stage that they were approaching the end of their life. Because lots of people, when they talk about end of life, they do talk about after death and after Mm. death somebody will bury you somebody will sort you out. so for me the biggest part is before you die what do you want us to do there's
2: there's t- just two points to pick up there because um I'm, I'm hearing this for the first time of course and there's there's a a comfort there from that planning process but also mm. there's practical benefits would that be fair i mean it's it's of course there's more to it yeah. than than you might think.
5: Of course and the thing as well for me is well, when you're approaching the end of your life it's very difficult because you're there you're in that situation and it's people don't want to die people don't want to talk about it. For us that conversation in the pub was four people who were not dying at least that we knew about you know if we got hit by a bus then we got hit by a bus but we were planning it whilst we were in the right frame of mind we didn't have to think about the sadness that surrounds death we were able to do it so for me planning it today tomorrow, regardless of your age, tell people I have a very young nephew who's only 26 said I want that song sung at my funeral and I have other. I have another friend the only the other night we were sitting talking through again all of his funeral songs nothing really to do with dying but in preparation it's just, I don't know if it's a different <coughs> mindset.
4: It's not morbid at all uh, and Sue asked Margaret absolutely precisely how do you feel you would like to plan your last days and she says I would like to stay at home and then go to hospice and that's what happened. It just worked and we wouldn't have known about that if we hadn't discussed it and I think that's very important. It is a subject that people will fight shy of but we shouldn't we should plan She planned as well, that's another point, she planned as well that because her disease was rare that she wanted to donate her brain to the Queen's Square Brain Bank for all sorts of diseases and that happened and the uh, undertaker Ken, uh, Ken Farraker he facilita- facilitated that with the hospital and everything was... And Sorted out. I got a lovely letter from the people at the Queen's um, Square, saying that thank you very much. It's already being there, and Margaret would be would have been happy to know that some of the research will be helping other people. So I'm I'm sort of banging the gong and for um, donation of body parts afterwards, particularly the brain.
2: something which people perhaps might be a bit more familiar with um i was trying to think i'm trying to think about my personal um uh you know discussions of this so far listening to the accounts from each of you and um a a simplistic point if you get a a provisional driving license i think you're asked about about organ donation aren't you so most people have had a bit of exposure from that point of view but certainly for people maybe of my my age group that's about as far as it's got perhaps
3: i don't think um Brain tissue donation is very new, actually. Arthur's wife, Margaret, was the first person who'd done that on the Isle of Man. Um, It sounded very easy when they first talked about it. I thought, oh, it's all been organised and signed up. In actual fact, I found then it wasn't. I I approached their GP thinking he would know, and I approached uh, Ken Farragher, and he told me, there's no way that can happen on the Isle of Man. (laughs) I then said, nobody tells me there's no way anything <laughs> happens. So I contacted the University College London and spoke to the lady there in charge of the brain bank. Um, we then went back um, to Arthur and to another gentleman who also wanted to donate his brain tissue. And I suggested that they should go and knock on the door of the uh, chief exec, who at that time was Malcolm Couch. They did. And Malcolm helped us facilitate this brain tissue donation off the island so thank you very much for doing that for us Malcolm, because it worked really well and i had two families who were really really relieved i think at the end because you mentioned it at the funeral didn't you and I i think the other lady did too that this is what their loved one had wanted to do because they both had really unusual progressive neurological conditions and to be able to look into them for other people was
2: really good you mentioned that that's not something that's happened on Ireland, presumably before. therefore, it, or before, sorry, yes, before, mm. but presumably it had done um, across the water. It happens in England, and, and yeah. It, it, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it does, it.
3: because it's easier to transport it, so it was all about who was going to pay the costs and how we were going to get it there, and and we set up a protocol with Ian Hughes, also from the um, mortuary. He was very, very involved and very, very helpful, and he was lovely with the, with the patients, even... Though they were dead, at that when by the time they got to him, he was very lovely with them and willing for the relatives to come in and see the patient afterwards.
0: The Nation Station,
4: Men's Radio.
2: We're having some messages coming in, so thank you very much indeed for those. And um, one I was going to put to my guests, if they if they don't mind, Alan asks. What is the difference between end-of-life care and an end-of-life plan? We've, we've heard both, um, of course, before the break. Um, where do I go for that one? Sue?
3: Yeah. Um, well, end-of-life care is actually looking after somebody at the end of their life. So that would be either being nursed at home, sometimes in hospital or in hospice, being looked after by specialists, by um, district nurses myself actually as long-term conditions I would still look after my patients at the end of life by home care by private agencies and by the hospice care team as well they have hospice at home staff who do go out to look after people at the end of their life it's about teaching carers to how they can help to look after people who are at the end of their life so that's the care it's literally it is what it says on the tin it's caring for somebody whatever care they need we will do that as much as we can. End of life planning is about looking ahead. And as Rosie said, you can start it at 26. I think um, my children, actually, I know my eldest daughter already has a will written and they have planned my end of life already. My son tells me I am (laughs) being cremated and I'm going to go in a rocket with Elton John singing Rocket Man. So they've planned it for me. So that's fine. But planning is about looking ahead. It's about getting things in place. It's about writing your will. It's about looking also at enduring power of attorney, particularly Rosie mentioned dementia before. And I think for people who go on to develop dementia, having that enduring power of attorney in place before you get to that stage is very, very important. Enduring power of attorney means that you hand over on the Isle of Man. You can only hand over your financial things to other people in England you can hand over your health matters as well but we haven't got that in place yet on the island so hope that explains it a bit
4: yeah if I can come in I've got a a power of attorney uh, written out my wife and I both wrote out it and our eldest son happens to be the one who will look after us or look after my finances when I'm incapable and Some say that will
2: should be any day now, but uh, <laughs> what, what what exactly does that entail? I, um,
4: it means that uh, they look after the will, they look after the finances, they look after all aspects apart. As Sue said, not, they can't make decisions for health and how you are. That comes in later,
2: and that's an agreement, kind of on the basis that the person requiring health care um, isn't perhaps deemed fit to, to, to make those decisions, Yeah, is, with that, the, is that correct?
5: Yeah, with the power of attorney, the power of attorney gives res, uh, legal responsibility, to, so I also have a power of attorney completed, my son and my sister are both going to be uh, given authorization to look after, so for example if I had to go into a care home and I wanted to pay some bills either or both of them can pay any of my bills. So they can do it together or they can do it jointly. It just means you haven't got to through a load of palaver trying to get access even to pay the care bills because if you don't have a power of attorney, then, you know, potentially you have to go for, through the courts, through the AG's office to try and get that, so that's done and dusted and it's only a form that you fill in, you'll get a form from the solicitor. It's filled in, mine's just filled in, on top of the kitchen cupboard there's a direction to all my forms, All my will is also completed, everything's done. I have sisters who have written very, very detailed end-of-life plans, what they want going forward for, for them, so it's important to actually plan the legal part of it as well as the emotional part and have the conversations.
0: I think just uh, listening to what uh, what's being said about the power of attorney, I think it's important to bear in mind that you can prepare a power of, inju- a power of attorney. But you don't have to activate no, it, yeah. but you can just have it there. But having it all ready, and then it just needs to be activated, yeah. all the decisions have been made. And it does give you tremendous peace of mind. This is, again, against myself. All my stories are against me. A few years ago, I wasn't very well, and I, I got taken into hospital. And it was all a bit frightening and, and horrible. Well, b- being unwell is, isn't it? And, and I, I suddenly realised that loads of things that I kept meaning to sort out, I hadn't sorted out. And so when I got a bit better, um, I got um, somebody in who, who looks after you know my finances and keeps me on the straight and narrow and that kind of thing because I'm not really fit to be let out unsupervised and he came in and he said look come on let's get the power of attorney sorted out and so we we put it all in place and as you can see I got better Um, but the peace of mind that it gives you to think it's sorted out and the peace of mind is enormous and when I was listening to Arthur talking about his late wife who was a, a professional lady herself and to, to keep, despite her dreadful illness that she had, to be able to keep some control uh, and, uh, over her affairs and, and, and her end of life must have been tremendously important to her, I would have thought of. Oh, yes.
4: <clears throat> <clears throat> On the uh, difference between the two as well, I have to say that we had tremendous assistance all the way through. Uh, I was the sole carer and didn't quite know what to do, tried various things. We bought our own uh, sort of Zimmer frame and rollator for her. And then Sue came on the scene and sort of said, well, look, there are lots of avenues that you can go on. And we made good use, not just of the health service, but it was also of the third sector. Now, the third sector is sometimes misunderstood. It is brilliant. You have hospice, you have Crossroads, you have Age UK, you have district nurses who are part of the DHS. But you have all these people and agencies who are there to help you. And it's people like Sue who can direct
2: the patient and the carer too. To come back to the question we had from, from our listener, I suppose part of that end-of-life plan is choosing the end-of-life care. Is that is that right? And how far, how far can that be done and how far is that dependent on maybe particular circumstances?
3: Yes, it it does depend on circumstances. Somebody may say that they want to die in hospice, but there's a limited number of beds there. Mm. People say they want to die in their own homes, but sometimes circumstances change at the end. They become frightened, they call the paramedics and are taken into hospital. Sometimes the carers feel they can't cope at the end, that they just can't do that. And they are left with the memory of somebody dying at home. I mean, it's not so many years ago that everybody died at home. Mm-hmm. It was the norm. The coffin was in the living room. You had the best room that people had their yes. coffin laid on a couple of chairs. And I can remember my great aunt had sheets in the bottom drawer for when she died. They were pristine white sheets. They were the, the sheets that you have when you die. And, and a nightdress. She had a nightdress as well. So it's only since... Death's become medicalised, really. Um, I think it's the health service is brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. The National Health Service is a brilliant thing. But I think that it um, did too much for us, really, and it has medicalised us so that death is a stranger, whereas birth and death were not strangers before. But Mm. we have made death a stranger. Now we need to welcome it back.
1: I was going to come in on that and sort of say that the the media has helped us with that in some ways because, as you mentioned before, there's certain television programmes that that perceive that we can save everybody and, and actually there's certain conditions and certain situations where we can't and sadly... We have to face up to that really. Um, Something I was going to mention there about uh, ambulances being called out in end-of-life situations, Um, there are some occasions where our hands are tied, of course we've got certain certain legal things we've got to consider um, and that goes for the whole Department of Health and Social Care, Um, so sadly sometimes it does result in a trip to hospital um, Mm -hmm. and for that to be, for someone to die at hospital to be a memory for, for the remaining family, it's really tough when that wasn't part of the plan. Um, Our role's changing all the time from an ambulance service point of view, and and as far as we can, we'll fit in with the end-of-life care plan and try and facilitate as much as we can to whatever the care plan's going to be. So if it's going to be a a planned uh, death at hospice or at home, we can try and facilitate that as best we can. But um, as I said, there are sadly some legal uh, Aspects that we've got to consider with that, and this is where things like the DNA CPR policy that we've written um, can help us to help make decisions on behalf of the patient and those families, just to, to try and do the best thing for them um, in those circumstances.
5: Don, can we? Can I just bring this in as well? So, um, Arthur spoke about the third sector before, and Steve talk, spoke about the paramedics, and Sue spoke. So, this is be an opportunity for me perhaps to plug yes. the Integrated Care Project that's happening mm-hmm. in Peel. So, Angela Murray who's the, the uh, At the time, the Director for Community Care in the Department of Health and Social Care commissioned a pilot project to look at developing a model for integrated care. We're using PEEL and the west for our pilot project. And it's a pilot project, although it has been launched from the 25th of February, but it includes for the time being the people who are registered with Peel Medical Centre who are over 18 years of age. The plan is absolutely definitely to cascade this across the whole of the island, but we needed to test it out somewhere first to make sure that we have everything that we need to do, you know, try and make, make, make mistakes, fix them and then you know, when we when we bring it across the rest, of the end, it'll be at least tested. Not necessarily perfect, but at least tested. And what that entails is the colleagues, myself and um, my colleagues from across the Department of Health and Social Care, community services and hospital services, working together with the third sector as well, in particular Crossroads, Hospice, Live at Home and the Corn Home, to try and actually work in a much more collaborative way. We have started already from the 25th of February for the colleagues, from across all those departments are actually we meet once every two weeks. Milkrease Court have very kindly allowed us to use their premises to have partner, what we call partnership meetings. We will be using the facility which is now known as Peel Day Centre, uh, Peel Resource Centre opposite Shopright in Peel, which will become the Western Wellbeing Centre. And we have, Sue will tell you, because Sue's part of the team, is we have, so when someone has the conversation about whether or not their end of life plans, they won't have to tell them to half a dozen people. They'll tell them to one person, and those conversations will be shared within the teams rather than... Because at the moment, sometimes, one service will be supporting... Many multiple services will be supporting one person, but they don't actually know what each other's doing. So you have one person, as Sue said before, in the centre of the care, half a dozen services supporting that person, and yet they're not talking to each other. Our, Our job is to actually make that happen much more better, and that's already started, and that will save... I think a lot of people's distress, because once they made the difficult decision about any end of life plan, they only have to tell people over and over again. And people, so if one service knows that someone doesn't want resuscitated, for example, that will be cascaded and shared with anybody who's involved with that particular person, so that the ambulance, the paramedics will also be part of that conversation, so the person won't be resuscitated unnecessarily. People will be supported to die well if, if that's at all possible. And that's the Integrated Care Project will do that.
2: To combine some of the things that, um, that you were speaking about there, so um, both from, from Sue's comments and, and from yours, Rosie, um, you've mentioned about death becoming kind of a medical issue these days. Integrated care, to my limited knowledge, is is sort of a movement away from acute... Yeah. care focus is that correct yeah.
5: well it's, it's moving away from hospital care focus so because there's a lot of acute care actually happens in the community so there's actually far more beds out there in the community than there are in hospital people are living and dying at home longer what we need to try and do is actually make the care that's delivered in the community stronger there is some really good collaborative working at the moment but it's all done unofficially this is about making it a structured formal process of integrated and collaborative care to allow the people at home like, like Arthur said when he before Sue became involved he would have to ring Crossroads and then maybe Age Care Isle of Man and all the mm. different agencies from the development of an integrated care model he would ring one person and that one person would collaborate the care for him so they'll have the conversations so that's definitely where we're headed and that will focus more on people living at home we have to get things much better for example respite care in the community people tend to go into an institution for respite care we need to look at actually delivering respite care in a different way but allows the care some rest and. Piece, and we allow the people at home to stay at home for as long as they can
1: and I think what one of the things I was going to mention on that to try and push what we mentioned earlier is having the, the patient at the centre of all of that plan really so from an integrated care model point of view is actually finding out what will be of benefits that patient talking to them and it's not always about end, end of life care planning it's the whole um, aspect of their care and, and the, the, the sort of holistic approach that we can look at um, so just to sort of emphasize that really, from, yeah. from a model point of view, it is making sure that these conversations are happening, um, and we mentioned before about peace of mind, it's it's making so, sure that the decisions are made well in advance so that the, the whole health and social care, the third sector, everyone that's involved with uh, with that patient's care, Can support them as best as we can, really, with the the plans that are in place.
4: And Rosie mentioned about respite as well. Mm. Uh, I'm that's one of the another sort of drum that I would like to bang as well. That if the carer does not get the respite, the respite is not just for the patient; it's for the care. If the carer Mm. doesn't get any respite, he become or he she becomes overwhelmed, and you end up with two patients. Mm. rather than one and I think it has to be carefully considered and it has to be delivered
5: So the model of integrated care we're delivering is we we spent myself and three colleagues spent a lot of time actually going in and around Peeland talking to the people we spoke to over a thousand people we spoke to numerous services across so what, how we're developing the model and building the model is on what people told us. This is not something we've just plucked out of thin air. People have told us what they want. We sat. We looked at the four, the key, the, the key themes for the services. Access to services was one of the things that came out of the top of almost every single consultation. Was access to services was so difficult. Yeah. We have to make it easier.
0: I'm really interested to, to hear you talking about this, Rosie, because I saw that when you were advertising uh, the like open days where okay. people would come along. So did you get a, a really good response? Did people want to come and talk to you about this? Well,
5: our, our, the very first consultation we had was on the 19th of September in Peel. It was blown a they, Literally, they, We couldn't even put our notices around because they were just getting blew off. We, had, we didn't have as many people attend as we would have liked, but there was, the people who did come gave us some invaluable information. We had a a further follow-up session in April, and again, another bad night, but again, we had um, a lot of good information. We've also went out and we've actually consulted with the people face-to-face, going out in different venues, going into different care homes, for example. We also did a a survey, which we've sent out to over 900 people, and we're getting absolutely fantastic results back from that. So, and we have also, we have a focus group as well, which are people who want to be involved in the development of the model, service users, people who use the services, If they want to join our focus group, and actually that really, really goes to the nitty gritty of what they would like and how they would like to see the policy developed, we can also facilitate that as where we're looking for people to come and join our focus groups. People
0: who use services, not professionals, we've got plenty of them. But but it just shows that there is a hunger for this, for this integrated care. Yeah. Everybody understands what it is that you're doing, which is a good starting point for you rolling it out and developing it in Peel and then yeah. rolling it out further. Yeah. I, think, I think Sue's probably best place to talk about the actual partnership working.
5: But it has been, uh, the feedback we've had has been really, really positive. I don't know if she wants to elaborate.
3: Yeah, we started, there's a core group of us already started meeting. We started very quietly and slowly um, because the premises aren't ready yet, basically, for for a large group to meet. But um, there is a core group of us meeting. And from that, um, we're able to refer to each other instead of writing out long documents and sending them off to some person that we don't know. We can now talk to each other face-to-face. We have a phone-in service so that our colleagues can, they know when we're meeting and they have a telephone number to dial in to us. Um, and that's working really, really well. I've um, already had about five referrals, I yeah. think, and I've been able to go out and see them with one of my colleagues and be introduced, so I'm not a complete stranger turning up on the doorstep anymore, that somebody they know is introducing me and bringing me in, and it's working really, really well so far.
2: We are just moving towards the, uh, the one o'clock news. Something I wanted to pick up on upon quickly, um, We've spoken a bit about respite and the importance for the carer, and f- dwelling on something Stephen said about peace of mind for people if they have this um, end of life plan in in process. It's not just peace of mind for for the patient; it's for loved ones, and that's that's just something I wanted to kind of get across. Is obviously maybe it's a good one for for you, Arthur.
4: It, that's uh, it's so right. Uh, we often put the patient at the centre which is a rightful place but there is also a place to consider the carer. Um, most likely the loved one is the main carer with the assistance of everybody else. And until Sue came on the scene I was sort of wallowing. People said to me, how are you coping? Fine, absolutely fine because that's the what we do and then when you get questioned my daughter's in law both were very good as were my sons in actually saying you're not coping dad and Sue was the one that started to say well this place is like Martin Ward for respite and never heard of it before but that was brilliant and then uh, Margaret started at the day centre at hospice which, and hospice I could not say I couldn't be higher in my praise for the help I got from hospice. Crossroads care assisted. Uh, age, Isle of Man, she would go there. And it, each time it gave me a chance to do the housework, do the cooking, get things ready, have a break, even just to go and drive the car up the mountain and have just a little walk without worrying What's Margaret like? What's she doing? I found it very difficult. And it became very important in the end that this respite is what you look forward to. I mean, it, was, it wasn't was um, to pass Margaret on somewhere. It was just to recharge, to fill your batteries up again so you can carry
2: on.
0: The Nation Station
2: Welcome back. You're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. We're still having messages coming into the studio, so thank you very much, everybody, for those. Um, I'll start with one from Susan, probably a good bridge from the first half of the programme. Susan says, Hi, everyone. I would like to say that my mum passed away in November 2018. We had conversations with all of the appropriate people in Nobles. The paramedics were amazing with her and staff on Ward 9 at Nobles were like family to us. Mum ended her days on Ward 9, not in hospice. This was her choice. So please let everyone know that you really do need to talk and all the help you need on the island is there. Thank you all very much for your caring and thank you, Susan, for, for sharing that with us. I guess the point to be taken from that is most people listening will either have an experience that relates to these discussions or certainly will know somebody who who does and it's, well I guess it's, it's you know, it, like, like we said at the top of the program it happens, happens to us all doesn't it? It
3: does, yeah. I think everybody's got, if you talk to anybody they can tell you a story of something that's happened, somebody who was either prepared to die and had done everything or how they wish they'd been prepared and that's the sad one isn't it when people say, we wish we'd talked. We wish we'd known what was going to happen. And that's what we would like to promote and to put a stop to really people saying we wish. Let's make the Isle of Man a place where everybody makes their advance care plans in advance and they can then relax and enjoy life.
2: A, a slightly crude question, if you don't mind. Do you know what sort of proportion of people have, have these plans have, is there any is it are, are people a minority who who uh, have, yeah, have plans? Yeah. I would yeah. say so minority. minority. Yeah. Would you? Yeah, I'd agree.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah,
3: I think minority of people really.
4: And the better, the sooner, the better. In most cases, mm-hmm. really, it's not waiting until it's nearly too late to do the plan. I think if we can encourage people to actually do such a plan at an early age, it can always be altered. It can always yeah, be changed. It's not immutable.
1: I think that's something that's worth mentioning. Really, it's what we said in the the, the, the first half of the program, isn't it? That um, that really, it's, it, talking about it doesn't mean you are going to die Im- imminently. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah. You can plan it at any point, and the. The good, the, the good reason for doing it when you've got your sound mind is that things can change all the time. So as your perspectives change, um, it could be something simple that a new song's released and and you prefer that song than the previous one that maybe is played at your funeral or um, or as you're being cared for example. Things change all the time and things can can remain fluid. But it is just the point of talking and and opening it up. And I think perhaps that's why people are in a minority who put these things into in put these things in place because we do shy away from it so much. And it's really important that we do try and help people to to make these decisions and and introduce the conversations just to just to jump on one point you said that
2: talking about it doesn't increase the likelihood of, of, you, of, you, <laughs> no. of you dying no I, you often hear people say you know don't don't jinx it or there's like, yes. there's, like <laughs> yeah. there's superstitious
1: things though isn't there I as, think it's as, worth as, saying we are all, all all rather likely to die it's it is going to happen unfortunately <laughs> yeah. we have to face up to that and, and it is just yeah it's it's being um being conscious that that is going to happen to us all and and when is the only thing that the lovely mystery that we've got in life. So enjoy every second you've got really, really do enjoy yourself, but, um, but plan, Put put that in place and it's and and open the conversation with your loved ones and your family. Another, Um, another message in, um, this is from John, this one,
2: it says it's pathetic and shameful when in the 21st century, people can't decide as to the direction and the timing of their end of life choice. Um, John says typical church and medical professionals who have alternative motives argue against what should be a personal choice. Um, I think just based upon what was said in the first half of the programme it is increasingly becoming more of a personal choice is that fair? Mm-hmm. Yes, we're, oh, yeah.
3: we'd, we'd like to um, base care around the individual that's why we're looking at the integrated care project which is going on in the west of the island and also looking at Making care more personalised. This is the message I came home with two weeks ago from Leeds, and I'm really, really promoting it, is we're there to look after each person and to give person-centred care as much as we can. So please have those conversations.
1: I think it's worth adding on to that. I hope you don't mind me putting in there to, to add on the, the fact that just because we're sitting here, as you, you introduced us as experts before, I wouldn't say any of us are experts, but... Um, <laughs> As, as people who are, uh, are very proactive with this kind of thing, is we're not immune to it. So just because we're medical professionals or um, people with a church background, perhaps, doesn't mean that we're immune to these conversations either. You know, we we have to face up to them as well, and and these conversations as we push through the first half that, that we've had them with our families as well, and and we really do advocate them. So certainly not pushing them as, as someone else's um, as, as anyone else's idea. It's, it is person centred, and it, we as individuals are open to that as well. You we
4: know, so. we're, we we're we have all experienced it, mm. yeah. and it's. We're trying to help people by passing on this information Absolutely. that we have gained and how it's made life simpler, better, easier for us. And if we can help other people on along the way, so forth, good, go
2: I, for it. I think that's exactly the point. Is going back to some of the accounts we heard at the very beginning of the programme. Um, different decisions might have been made had people been or had people experienced these kinds of scenarios before and therefore... I guess the aim is to inform people who haven't perhaps.
0: Yeah, I I I think what the the good thing here, and I'm talking about taking myself out of this when I say the good thing, I'm talking about about Rosie and and Sue and and Arthur and, and Steve, is that what they're trying to put over here is, look, these are approachable people, knowledgeable people, that you can have the conversations with. Nobody needs to do what I did, make up the answers, get yourself into all kinds of difficulty. Um, but I'd just like to, to jump back to Susan's comment. Um, and Susan, thank you very much for joining in the programme. I think Susan makes a very important point there when she said that, um, was it the, uh, the hospital ward where they became like friends mm-hmm. and your carers? I, I was lucky in that when I nursed my father, I had minimal care, I, I couldn't manage him. Uh, but my mother, um, her needs were much more complex. And I had some wonderful carers who, because she ended her life at home. And I had some wonderful carers who became like close friends, like family members. And we're still in touch now. My mother's been dead for a while, but I'm still in touch with the carers. And we still have that closeness. And there is that that bond because it is you as the, as the, the next of kin. And I think Arthur will bear me out here. You are the closest to it, but you can't do it on your own. No, and the the carers who come in and the nurses that support you do become like 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 close friends. And I'd like to also talk about respite care again because it's it's not always appropriate for the person who needs for the patient to to be taken out of the home setting. And I'm thinking again, just a personal example of my mother, who had dementia, and she was. Absolutely terrified when she went for for respite care because she was in an environment she couldn't understand or recognize, and she was absolutely terrified, and it did um, it did mark a deterioration. She when she came back home, she didn't recover from from that from moving down to a lower plateau. So I think again, coming back probably, Rosie, and Sue to your integrated care, it's looking at the person and saying, Is it better? to work out some respite care within the home, within that familiar surrounding. For somebody who has dementia who can't cope with a change of surrounding, familiarity is very, very important to them. So I'd throw that back into the conversation. We're definitely, as
5: part of our integrated care model, we will be looking at offering alternative respite, not respite where people have to leave their home and go into another institution. We will definitely be exploring what we can do to make respite at home. Much more accessible.
4: Hospice does do that as well, which yeah. is wonderful. That like you get uh, one night, two nights a, a week sometimes, mm-hmm. where you get a hospice at home. It was it was that too was brilliant.
5: And also, Crossroads Care have just undertaken a survey to look at the carers and the uh, the support that carers get, and obviously that will become in in time an action plan of how people are going to have to support the carers. Because as Arthur said, the carers. Sometimes take second place to the person that's being supported. So we need to make that better
0: also. That, I have to say, is, is often the, the, the carer's fault because we're superhuman, aren't we, Arthur? <laughs> <laughs> that's why we say, when fine. people say, yeah, Absolutely fine. You? Yeah, I'm absolutely fine.
4: And, it's, you know? it, and that's when the family step in and say, Dad or Grandad, you're not fine. My two daughters-in-law, my two sons, were very, very supportive and help, helping me. But they saw that I was wallowing, but I wouldn't admit it. But that's, that's, as that's we, you say, Judith. We're superhuman and we can do everything ourselves. That's exactly the can't. point, though. I mean, we, we have a, a
2: we have a human propensity to to bottle things up, don't we? A, yes. a, especially when faced with that kind of circumstance.
4: You don't want to admit that you're failing. I think that's part yeah, of it. And
3: you're not failing. That's you know, we held a meeting, and I felt very guilty that after the meeting because that's when Arthur realised that he did need some help. But at that meeting, we were all kind of pushing him to say. You need help his daughter-in-laws um, really p- pushed him to the edge, I think, didn't they? And I felt so bad afterwards, but from that Arthur did agree that he needed help, and that yeah that he got to that point where he wasn't superhuman anymore. Yeah, I think it would yes. be And he is superhuman, actually, I have to say <laughs> what a pleasure. What an absolute pleasure it was to work with Arthur and his family. I'll just say that. I, I mean, I'm privileged with all the families that I work with. I have to say I'm accepted into their home. I'm a stranger. They welcome me into their home, and it's absolutely fantastic.
2: Something I wanted to ask you about. Um, on last week's programme, we heard from um, some former police officers who were talking a bit about their, their time in service, and one of the things we spoke about is the um, <coughs> the... Well, the challenge of trying to separate that emotional investment from a, from a professional point of view with your, 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 your line of work, That I mean that certainly takes a, a very particular kind of, of, uh, of, of calibre of person, would <laughs> that be fair?
3: Um, yeah, <laughs> but I think I do get involved with people, I'm told that I shouldn't cry with people, but I do, it's me, I, I give what, what I am to my, my role. Um, I think we were told years ago nurses shouldn't, nurses should stay kind of not involved, don't, don't get too, too in like liking the family. But you can't help it, and you couldn't do this job effectively if you didn't get involved with people. But that's also so.
2: something. I mean, again, using Susan's comment. Thank you very much, Susan, for that submission. But that reflects exactly that. That's that doesn't go unnoticed and. Um, there's there is a, a feeling of, of community perhaps at these times which is important
3: yeah yeah i think, I think so the worth. community come together um we've all got feelings and going back to can i link that back maybe to the do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation policy one of the factors that i felt very strongly about as well was the effect it has on those paramedics who go in and because it's their role because it's in their job they have to resuscitate someone even if the family are saying oh she wouldn't want that he wouldn't want that and they can look at the person and know that they're frail but they have to do it unless that do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation order is in place it's the paramedics role is that right Stephen that they yes, yeah. they have to do that and I've seen paramedics who've been very upset having to carry out resuscitation that they know is going to be futile.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, I've spoken to some of your team about that, Stephen, yeah. and I, I'm sure it's that you've had going, those discussions. Yeah, it was something yeah. I was
1: going to come in on and say that... Uh, that pretty much all healthcare professionals join the job or, or decide to take on the job because we care, because we really want to help people and it becomes a vocation, it's not just a job for us and as much as we've got the title professional it's not not just a profession for us it becomes a real vocation it's something that we're really passionate about for um, for almost all of us um, and that's something that, that really does reflect in our care of the patient so as much as we quite often have to have some detachment Um, there is some involvement there and there is the emotion that comes across because we are all human as well Um, and the the certain situations that we can be faced with that will resonate very closely with our experiences um, previously uh, um, within uh, our job as well as with uh, personal situations so it's something that we I think we would all say that you know we'd we, we can relate very closely with people for that sort of reason for that vocational side um just to expand on what sue was saying there about the uh, the dna cpr policy um it is very difficult to uh, from a, a an ambulance service point of view to make a decision very quickly on whether to or whether to not uh carry out cpr for someone um and i think it's really important to to, to push forward the the fact that we we mentioned before about cpr being a treatment um, and that's exactly what it is what what the DNA CPR is for is purely for that point where the person goes into cardiac arrest um, and CPR is the only treatment option that's available to them. Um, All treatment up until that point whether you've got a DNA CPR um, or not um, will continue so it's only at the point of cardiac arrest that the DNA CPR policy um, uh, comes into force Um, and that's the point there really where communication with the, the whole health service but certainly from us from an ambulance service point of view if you can inform us that you have a DNA CPR um, in place for your loved one that's really helpful for us and we can make a decision very quickly um, and I think just to expand a little bit I don't know if Sue wants to come in on this and say as well but the uh, a DNA CPR can be completed by en- any person we don't have to be sick we don't have to be at the point of um, looking towards the end of life it can be completed by anybody who's fit and healthy who actually wants to make that informed decision um, and again it's about opening up that conversation so it's an individual an individual decision that can be made by anyone who um, has what we call mental capacity so they have the ability to make the decision themselves and that conversation can be opened up with any healthcare professional um, and most commonly that will be your uh, your GP uh, and they'll help you make that decision and they can complete the form for you um, there are certain situations where maybe your capacity um, isn't um, isn't as it should be, you're not able to make the decision for yourself and at that point healthcare professionals may step in to help make that decision um, normally in communication with your family, to help make a a decision that will be in your best interest really. Um, but again, that should be communicated appropriately with the family members and with carers who are involved. I don't know if you want to expand on that or if I've covered that well enough, Sue. If that's... I think, no,
3: you've covered it really, really well. But I think the point that we have to make is in community, the only person who can actually sign the DNA CPR is your GP. Yeah. So although I do have lots of conversations with people, I then go back to the GP and ask them to sign the form. Um, quite often they like to double check with the patient, um, but sometimes they take my word for it. But they like to double-check. But it means all they have to do then is ask a question. They don't have to have the in-depth conversation, which I am lucky perhaps to have more time. Mm. GPs are very, very busy these days. Um, We know that our GPs cover more patients than they do in the UK. Actually, the figures have been released just recently about how many people on the island there are to each GP practice and we found out that we have actually less GPs per head than they do in the UK so our GPs are really really busy but if you want to have that conversation with them they will do that they will do a DNA CPR form
1: for you. It's I worth guess. considering again that that can also be revoked. So if if you make the decision yeah. Um, yeah. once you, once you decide you would like it, if then you change your mind, if you've got that mental capacity to do that, you can do that. Just speak to the doctor again, and that can be uh, rescinded. Yeah. It's worth mentioning that as well. So and everything think, remains fluid. So. I think so it's be, worth
5: think. really stressing the point that families cannot make that decision for you. So yes, the person no. who's in the DNA CPR is the person. So very often, in particular when people go into care homes, their families are asked, do you want your mum, dad, brother, sister resuscitated? They do not and they cannot make that decision on behalf of someone else. As I think Steve just said, the medics will take over and make the decision based on someone's best interest, but the family should not be asked and they cannot make that decision on behalf of somebody else.
2: We'll come back um, maybe near the end of the programme about signposting about how people can find out some more um, and and maybe if it's something they're interested in learning about in the immediate future. Um, if you wouldn't mind a little change of tact, a message from David H here, which I think probably one for you, Sue. Um, he said, hi, is the Liverpool Care Pathway still used or has this been discredited?
3: The Liverpool Care Pathway is no longer in use. Um, some people did discredit it, I think it was an excellent tool. I personally was involved with the group who brought DNA CPR to the community in the Isle of Man. I think it got bad press from England, wisely used and properly used. It was really, really good document. It just stated what people wanted at the end and when people were coming to the end of their life, it gave reminders to the healthcare professionals looking after them to check their mouth care, to check they had enough fluids. It did not stop people eating and drinking, which is why it got bad press. It never, never said that. It was about people losing consciousness. Were they getting all the proper care that they needed at the end of life? It was a good tool, but it's gone. Unfortunately, it has gone. So that's why we're looking now at more personalized advanced planning. And we do, we can get these advanced plan leaflets from hospice, or from cruise. I would definitely go to Cruise and get the folders that they can give out. It's got they've got all sorts of advice in there. I recommend going there they give you a folder.
1: It's worth saying the Liverpool care pathway, as much as it's been removed, it, it did pave the way to what we have now, which is actually a very, very uh, strong structure that we've we've got that, that places the, the patient in the centre of the the yeah. whole situation so it, it has paved the way for what we have now which is a really really good yeah. uh, system and that works I'll well. just
4: check with Sue I think you can get the advanced the, the plan um, at doctors the doctor's surgeries I think yes. they have the yeah. pl- them up on the wall you can go and get a leaflet yeah. how to plan for your eventual yeah.
2: demise. Well, th- thank you very much for those contributions and thank you, David H. I hope that answered your question. If you're listening live, do keep your messages coming in. You can text us on 166 177. You can email studio at manxradio.com and you can use the hashtag MRPerspective. The Nation Station
0: Manx Radio.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. A follow up message from David H who just says. Uh, you answered my question perfectly, so thank you everybody in the panel. Um, it would be a bit remiss of me perhaps not to mention, um, earlier this year I went to the launch of the Shoal Academic Centre, um, and I've, I've got written here, which aims to stand at the forefront of research into palliative and end-of-life care. Um, maybe, Arthur, it's one to come to you on. Um, what kinds of... Or what do you know, first of all, about, about that centre?
4: Well, uh my daughter-in-law uh, is Dr. Giovanna Cruz who does a lot of research there and uh, she used the story of myself and my wife as a part in the integrated care and I think it has been used throughout different parts of Europe and Britain, the same one. and. Uh, I think what they're doing there is going to be so beneficial not just for the Isle of Man but beneficial for everyone else. I think Sue would probably know more of the techniques and such like. <laughs>
3: Um, yes, the, the School Academic Centre, Dr Giovanna Cruz and Professor Sarah McGee mm-hmm. are both part of a work stream and we're looking at research into integrated care as part of that work stream and they are going to collate all the surveys for us, they've already collated some and they're going to collate the patient surveys. The ones that are coming in at the moment are just about finished, I think, now. Um, And then we'll redo the survey in a year's time. So Giovanna and Sarah are working very, very closely. It's an absolutely wonderful resource that they've got, and they've agreed to come on this work stream with us. Yeah, And it was wonderful to work with Giovanna again, because actually I can say that I worked with Giovanna when I was looking after Margaret as a family member she was very very involved in margaret's care and in fact she and her husband moved over here to help look after margaret so i think that it's wonderful that she's now involved in this research facility
2: mm-hmm. at, at the at the launch i spoke to um, professor Anne hendry who's senior associate at the international center for integrated care and one of the things that she was talking about was the um international kind of discussions that are being had around this and different jurisdictions are working with each other.
5: Yeah one of my colleagues Margaret Swindler she recently went to San Sebastian to the Integrated Care Conference and there was over 60 countries represented at that Integrated Care Conference so Integrated Care is huge absolutely huge around the world. Before we actually went out to meet the people of, of Peel in the west we did we spent three months researching we actually visited Torbay, which is a really well-developed model of integrated care down in Torbay, which is still learning all of the time and every day. But yeah, Dr. Hannah Henry, we've, we've had numerous conversations with her also. She also has been in the island a few times where we've caught up and looking at developing models of integrated care, learning from other people's lessons and mistakes. So yeah, she's she's very involved in our project also.
2: So how, I mean crudely, how has, how has end-of-life care changed um, over the, over a generation and and what changes kind of are being implemented now we've spoken a bit about integrated care is, is that the main direction of change perhaps at the minute
5: for sure in terms of delivering care we're looking at we're definitely developing a more collaborative way of working with and the introduction of the integrated care models everybody's support plan will be developed we will have a collaborative care plan which will involve anybody who's involved with the people who are receiving the service so that one support plan, covers all services so at the moment people who have if they have say hospice in, and then they have the district nurse and long-term conditions they will have three separate support plans whereas going forward they will have one support plan going forward and then everybody can work together and everybody can know they might have to um hob off and do little tiny assessments belong to specific to those services but the support plan will be the generic support plan that will cover the person's own needs
2: we've had a another message in from david i think it's a different david to david h um David said, from comments on the programme, it's clear there is no provision for those of us that have led a very active life, and when we come to the point of being similar to a vegetable, there is no way of escaping from, from that position. I think what David's referring to is probably a discussion about euthanasia, is that right? Which is probably quite a different topic to broach.
3: Yes, it is. I, I think, yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah. Go on, Arthur. Yeah. It is. There were... Very, very rare
4: moments when my wife turned to me and turned to my sons and my daughters-in-law and said, I can't go on, please take me to Switzerland. And that was very difficult, very hard and a very emotional sort of uh, process to go through. I do not know whether I could speak for euthanasia or not but I know that some patients do go through that process uh, because it's very difficult. Which brings me on to the other thing is that perhaps there is a need for some sort of palliative uh, help. Uh, I know it's uh, probably a very difficult subject at the moment, but there is a lot of discussion about uh, medicinal cannabis, which is not the same sort of cannabis as the pot, etc. But I wonder whether that would be helpful. I know it would have helped my wife if, as I've read, what it does, it does sort of ease pain. I d- didn't really want to bring something like that in, and I know the rest of the panel cannot discuss it. Well, that's
2: I mean, I, I can discuss it because I don't have any professional involvement. Yeah. Well, not as such, but it's topical because we're, we're waiting for results of a consultation that, that may or may not instigate yeah. um, further, I don't know, deregulation, whatever you might call it. That's that's one for, for the future. But I think th- just to dwell on something you said about, about uh, Switzerland, about being sent to Switzerland... I'm not asking for any personal views because this is all subject to, yeah. to, to legal regulations, etc. But different jurisdictions have different approaches to this thing, to, 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 to end-of-life discussions, I suppose, which is something that we can talk about more broadly. It's very difficult. I yeah, think it, 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 is.
0: it is. I, I think it's. Um, I, I think actually, I'm, I'm grateful that, that, that David has has brought this up because it's it's like the elephant in the room, isn't it? It's yes. not part of what we're talking about because what we're trying to to say to people here is it, we're talking about the best possible end of life that that we can have within the way and, things are, the laws now, and, but,
2: quality yeah, and quality of life. Yeah, and
0: quality of life but it's perfectly true i mean let's go back to to my father who was extremely fit very active man great brain as well as as, as you know as as being in, in good health up to say the last three years of his life and every night i used to help him to get ready for bed and i would kiss him and say i love you and he said the same thing every night he said if you love me you'd help me to die now to pretend those conversations aren't happening is just not dealing with real life we know yes. it's happening and we know we can't do anything about it but but i think we should we need to acknowledge it because it's it's kind of we're talking about all the other issues and then pretending that we don't we don't understand that we do understand that it's just not within our remit too that's right to yes to
3: and and I, about can, this, I can say too that the number of times i've been asked just give me an extra injection just put a pillow over so my nice. head Yes. I've been asked so so many times and no I can't do that I can try and make the end of your life as comfortable as I can but I can't give you the extra injection I can't put the pillow over your head or the bag over your head
2: I can't do that quite quite apart from the from the legal framework that's probably enough for a whole separate program in its own yes. in its yes. own right yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah but yes. um, yeah I, I think I think one thing that we that we can draw from that is as I say is that's is the preservation of quality of life wherever possible and that's that's something that's been common from from all of these discussions is about trying to maintain comfort and and a control over what happens to you is dignity as well yeah it's it's dignity
4: for the person that's they're not just pushed into a corner and left
5: but i think even in response to davis um question obviously we have to stay within the legal framework but it is really important to have the conversations about end of life because there's lots of things that I do not want to happen to me when I approach my end of life and whilst I would talk to my son about what that is and isn't if I don't write it down and put it somewhere no matter what he says as I approach the end of my life I I no longer have the ability to talk or think or speak for myself He, he potentially could be ignored because the legal side of things that we have to follow the legal framework but if I have put it in writing myself and signed it off in my name then he can just say this is what my mum wants or not as the case may be.
1: I think something I was going to touch on that, that might be worth mentioning is we. I think it's natural the way that the conversations go is we tend to we've, we've talked about mums and dads and grandparents and that kind of thing but actually um, end of life care is something that does involve younger people as well and mm-hmm. it's something that really is worth sort of highlighting that because I'm sure there's people who have gone through um, some really difficult times with younger people and, and children who have gone through end of life care as well. Um, and it's just worth mentioning that, that likewise, exactly the same as adults, is this. It's very difficult to do, but conversations with the younger people can still happen. Um, they can be very assertive. Um, a lot of younger people can put plans in place uh, and can be very, um, very eloquent. Really, with how they they discuss what what they would like to have happen at the end. So, again, I think it's just worth sort of highlighting that as a. As a another area that that needs mentioning as well I'm sure people have had experience of that
3: I think younger people who know that they have a life limiting illness actually are more forward about stating what they want and what they don't want I have had 18 year olds who wanted a DNA CPR order in place and And younger and younger my caseload tends to be from 16, 18 upwards to 102 at the moment (laughs)
2: <laughs> I mean, again, um, slightly kind of flippant point, but people talk about having a bucket list in inverted uh-huh. commas, yes. or, or you know, a, yeah. a, a list of things that they like yeah. to do. Yeah. Um, for some people, that maybe becomes accelerated. You might, you might say.
0: I would mm. say, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That, and why not? Yeah, <laughs> that, that reminds me that, that something that a hospice nurse told me uh, ages ago, and she that this this was this was years ago, but it, it stuck in my mind. And she was talking about, she didn't name the person, she was just talking about a, a gentleman that, that she was helping at home and he was very poorly. And um, he, he, he. she would go and see him regularly and he would complain that um, getting dressed in a morning would absolutely exhaust him. So getting up, getting washed, getting dressed would just wipe him out. And then all he could do would sit in the chair for hours, recovering from the effort of getting washed and dressed. And she said, tell you what she said don't get washed and dressed she said what do you really like doing and he said painting he, he enjoyed doing watercolors she said well forget about the getting washed and dressed stay in your pajamas don't get washed use the bit of energy that you got do a little bit of painting mm-hmm. that'll make you happy getting washed and dressed didn't Make him happy, just wiped out his energy <laughs> level. So it's 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 all about end of life. And because this gentleman was at the end of his life, he had a, a terminal cancer. And it was about, what she was saying to him was, never about all the routine things that we fill our life with, just do the things that are good for your spirit.
2: And we've, we've spoken a bit about um, different pathways available to people, and we've spoken about integrated care. We've spoke, spoken about um, the treatment of people in their own homes. Does that make those decisions easier if you're if you're in your own environment or your own comfort zone perhaps
3: i think people feel more able when they're in their own home to be able to express their wishes yes there's no uniforms well there are uniforms actually because i i occasionally wear a uniform and district nurses wear uniforms but i think people feel more assertive and more able to make those decisions and and to explore them with, with the professionals when they're in their own home. When you go into hospital, there's a, people feel slightly intimidated, I think, sometimes. Mm.
4: Um, Unsure. It's a very yeah. unusual place for, to, uh, for someone. I know it's there for their benefit, but to suddenly be put into hospital, it's harder to make the decisions because yeah. you're, you're under somebody else's power. It's not, I don't mean power, but don't, then you, you
1: almost have a sense that the, re, the responsibility can be somebody else's when I'm in hospital. Yes. yes. And, and that, that's almost. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they know best. You, They'll uh,
4: deal with me. Exactly. Yeah. That's right.
3: And yeah. I think they've tried to normalise that in hospital. There is a, mm. a don't wear pyjamas goes on in hospital so you feel more like yourself because you've got your own clothes on but also the staff in hospital are so so busy the nurses maybe haven't got quite the same the luxury of having time to spend with patients to find out what what it is that they want so we're lucky in community in somebody's home you do have that
0: time yeah
2: i guess also um I mean, I, I I can't speak. I'm I'm, I'm lucky, Touchwood. I've never been particularly ill uh, in in hospital. I've had some experiences of family members. What I have experienced quite recently um, is the 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 other end of of, of a lifespan, um, becoming a father relatively recently. And um, it's true that being in hospitals, being in a hospital environment, you feel as though you are. Um, um, subject to a set of rules and parameters, which you which you don't have perhaps in in other environments, which has good and bad elements probably. Um, yeah,
3: I, I think you feel supported as well. Yes. You know. Well. Um. But like I said before, the National Health Service, everybody had their babies at home, didn't they? Or unless you were lucky enough to be able to afford to go into what were then nursing homes. I think f- to have your baby. Um. But everybody had a child at home. Everybody died at home. That was normal. That was the norm. But I think, you know, when, when you're having a baby now, I think you feel more supported in hospital. Um, I went through it some years ago with my daughter, supporting her. Never, ever again, Rachel, I might say. Never again. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, <laughs> I've had another message in from, D- from David H. just for another quick shift of tone. Um, David says, I live alone. Um, does this put me at a disadvantage? And that's an interesting one. We've spoken a lot about families and support networks and loved ones. That's not a luxury available to everybody. Do you,
0: no, quickly, and oh, yeah. do you know, it's. And I live alone, David. You know, and and I was just listening to you talking about hospital, and I was was thinking that for somebody who lives alone, the it's it's a it's quite comforting to have somebody to take you over. You know, when when you're on your own to have. To be taken into a hospital ward and it's happened to me and somebody else to make all the decisions and say, you just lie there. This is what we're going to do. And it is it is quite comforting. David, I know exactly what you're saying. Um, it doesn't put us at a disadvantage. I would say it, that this this conversation we've had today is even more relevant for us who live on our own to say we're not, we, are not, we are on our own in our living circumstances, but there is a whole team, and in the, the last few moments that remain to us today, we're going to just sketch out the, the, the support networks that are there. There is a, a tremendous support network, and with this integrated care, it's going to be even more important for people like David and me, who, who live on our own, and that integrated care will be really, really valuable to make us feel supported in our own homes.
2: So, with, with two minutes to go, I, I introduced this program as being a taboo subject. Um, a, how do we how do we break that
1: taboo? And and B, how do people find out more? Firstly, talk about it. It is not taboo. Um, it, 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 we have to face up to that it. it's going to happen. So talk about it. Um, I think uh, Rosie mentioned earlier about uh, sitting in a pub um, over a yeah. couple of uh, couple of drinks and, and talking about it very openly. And we did the same with our family, and, and it, that's really beneficial. Very relaxed environment, and you talk about it, and you get to know what everybody would like. Um, so that that's that sort of that worked for me. I don't know if anyone else has got any different experiences, but certainly that was a good relaxed atmosphere to work. No,
3: I think that's a really good idea that you you sit and talk to your friends, your family, and then take that conversation back. To your GP, if you decide you want this DNA CPR form in your fridge in a little bottle, it'd be lovely to open the fridge and alongside the milk bottles there's one of these messaging a bottle things. If we all had something like that, even if it isn't about end- of life care, if it's about what explicit medication you're taking, what you might need help with, the paramedics when they open your door that you usually use or see the green cross on the back of the door and know to be alerted that something's different here but uh, have that conversation
2: quickly approaching the two o'clock news about 30 seconds to go and um, where do people go to find out more um,
1: health service I would say speak uh, to, yeah. GPs. GPs. to start some conversation I've got a list of people you can talk to hospice have got some wonderful resources yes. that are available An advanced care plan is a very relaxed document and that helps to put things together and um, Um, If you're um, going down to the the route of bereavement, there's Cruise available. It's a a charity that are very, very good with offering some things there. Family, of course, probably the most ideal people to speak to, first of all. Uh, Um, And
3: Cruise actually will speak to people before they die. And before a bereavement, Cruise will support people and they support children as well. Interesting. Thank you
2: very much indeed to all of my guests. Thank you to William King. Thank you to Aaron Ibanez for producing the programme as well. Join us again next week. The Nation
0: Station Thanks Radio.